Please be sure to have that chapter open in front of you because I'm going to be moving around in the chapter quite a bit this evening and actually trying to cover the whole of that chapter. So um, definitely it'll be useful to have it open before you. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, dear God. Amen. In 2002, the Queen celebrated her Golden Jubilee. As part of the celebration, she attended a huge state banquet. There were hundreds of guests there from all over the world, heads of state, more princes and princesses than you could easily count, political leaders, ambassadors, heads of industry, and so on. The guest list was really a a who's who of the rich and the powerful. As you'd expect, the queen sat at the center of the head table in a place where she had a commanding view of everything that was going on that evening. Course after course of the finest imaginable food was served by immaculately presented waiters and waitresses. At the end of the night, everyone stood up to drink the Queen's health before a huge limousine swept her off to Buckingham Palace. I don't know what she did there, but I'm imagining she probably sat and watched the highlights of her big day on TV to see how she looked and how the whole day had turned out. Imagine for a moment a different kind of celebration. Imagine that the Queen decided that actually she didn't agree with all that pomp and ceremony, that it was time to do things a little bit differently. So imagine her taking on the role of cloakroom attendant. As her guests arrive, she takes the coat from one after another and places them in the cloakroom. Later in the day, she busies herself working in the kitchen then serving food and pouring drinks. And if you hung around long enough, you'd notice she was last to leave, not content to go until the clear-ups finished. Now, I wonder how her guests on that day would have reacted, or, or how we would have reacted if we had been guests at an event like that. I think we'd find it strange, uh, or even scandalous behavior on the Queen's part, In fact, I think we or or somebody else there would very quickly have tried to stop her. We'd have sent her back to her seat at the head table. She shouldn't be serving. It's not right. It's not proper. Well, this evening here in John chapter 13, we've read of a party that Jesus threw for his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. They got together and they were expecting a very particular sort of occasion because it was the the Passover, a feast at which God's people would gather to remember God liberating them from oppression and slavery in Egypt. Now, a lot of the meals that we attend have a very specific uh, etiquette, a very particular form, and it was no different with this meal and the etiquette at Jesus' table. For instance, in those days, if you were an important guest, 
you'd be invited to sit or recline near the head of the table. If you were the host who was doing the inviting, you'd make sure that the people you loved best, your best friends, would be the one that would be nearest to you. Uh, But there's more etiquette than that. As soon as everybody had settled down, the food would be served and the celebrations would begin. But not before everyone had had their feet washed. Now, in that culture, it was only those at the very, very bottom of the social ladder, Gentile slaves, it was only they who were permitted or asked to wash people's feet. Respectable Jews just thought of this as the most utterly demeaning of tasks. Washing feet is something for the lowest of the low. But here tonight, there was a problem Because there doesn't seem to have been a servant on hand to wash the feet at Jesus' banquet. This evening, as we gather with Jesus and his friends in the upper room, Jesus' life is speeding towards its climax. Later this evening, he'll be betrayed. Tomorrow, he'll be arrested and he will die on a cross. As we read, we should be paying careful attention to everything that Jesus does and everything that he says in these passages. This morning we thought briefly about something that Jesus said in John 13. We noticed a last command that he gave to his disciples before he died. He said, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. That was his last instruction before he died, something we read later in the chapter. We've listened to what he says, but now we need to pay attention to what Jesus does. If you're somebody who's used to reading the Gospels, you'll know that Jesus' actions are often massively symbolic. When Jesus acts His actions often speak as loud or louder than words. What will be his last action? What's the last thing that Jesus is going to do with his disciples before he dies? Look again at verses 4 to 5. Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is the job for Gentile slaves. And here Jesus, the master, washes his disciples' feet. In this context, it's a pretty incredible action. And as if that action itself isn't enough, I want you to notice something you may have missed in John's account. Look at verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come to God from God and was returning to God. So he washed his disciples' feet. Did you get that? That connection that's being made here? It's no coincidence that Jesus washes his disciples' feet. 
It's not on the spur of the moment that Jesus wraps that towel around his waist. Jesus knows that God has given him all authority on earth. And so, because he knows that, he uses that authority to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus washes the disciples' feet precisely because of who he is, not in spite of who he is. It's not in spite of his divine nature, it's because he's God that he stoops to this menial task. Whenever Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he shows us God. I find it hard to take that in. I find it hard to believe that a key part of the character of God is a willing service. And yet surely that underpins the whole of Jesus' life and certainly his death. Our God chooses to serve. Friends, if we're serious about following Jesus, then we we really must come to terms with this. That's what Jesus points, us, uh, points out to us in verses 12 to 17. He turns to his disciples. Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Jesus is saying, you think I'm the boss here, and you're right, I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. Often it's hard to reconcile Jesus' command in this passage with what we see and what we ourselves do in the church Time and time again in the body of Christ, we see people putting on airs and graces, people lording it over each other if they're given the hint of an opportunity. Perhaps they've been called into leadership in the congregation. So easily they understand that selfishly, an opportunity to gain prestige or to exert power over other people. We have been thinking about this a few times recently particularly as we were thinking of electing elders here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. Do you remember what Peter warns those who would be leaders or elders? They shouldn't be calculating what they can get out of it, but eager to serve. That's Peter writing years later, but with the events of the upper room still in the front of his mind, eager to serve. Friends, there's something massively incongruous about Christian leaders who lord it over other people, people who are unwilling to serve. Their character is diametrically opposed to everything that Jesus stood for. Whenever we imagine ourselves as people who need not serve, we imagine ourselves greater than Jesus. 
And we rule ourselves out of the life that Jesus calls us to. That, as I say, is Jesus' point in verse 16. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master. No messenger greater than the one who sent him. If a life of service was good enough for Jesus, and if that life defined him, then, friends, there's no better way for us. In fact, there's no other way. This is the life we're called to. American pastor Kent Hughes gives some advice to those who really want to follow Jesus in this regard. He says, wherever we may be on the path of servanthood, there's one thing we must all do if we're to be servants. And that is to look to the cross We need to envision Jesus washing the feet of rough, uneducated fishermen. We need to see Christ on the cross washing our sins away as the ultimate servant. And then we need to whisper, Lord, you washed their feet. You washed away my sins. I will serve you and your church. Amen. Friends, we're going to take a break just now in in our reflections in this chapter and sing together number 399, a song that focuses on this serving character of Jesus. From heaven you came, helpless babe. Entered our world, your glory veiled. Number 399. And we'll keep our seats this time as we sing.
We're going to spend just seven or eight minutes to complete this quick look at John chapter 13. We've begun a new series here this evening that will take up most of our Sunday evenings between now and Easter, a series in chapters 13 to 17 of John's Gospel. As we noticed this morning, these five chapters play a very important role in John's Gospel. Here he records much of the conversation of Jesus and his disciples in the upper room where Jesus shared the Passover meal just before he went to the cross. It's very interesting to be looking at a passage like this shortly after we finished in our morning services looking at the Sermon on the Mount. These two passages, the Sermon on the Mount and and this farewell sermon of Jesus, are the two longest, most extended passages of Jesus' teaching in the whole of the Bible. Uh, They have a a lot in common in that regard. They record important material that Jesus shared with his disciples. In a sense, these two passages span the whole of the, the period of discipleship that Jesus spent with his followers. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7 recorded there, it comes right at the beginning. It's uh, an introductory body of teaching. Jesus begins to teach those who have responded to his call, those who have repented from their lives without God and have entered into a new life with him. He explains to them the realities of the kingdom of God. By the time we get to John chapter 13, we've reached the end of that period of discipleship, at least under the direct teaching of the incarnate Jesus. It's lovely when you compare these two to notice the development that there's been in the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. There's a much greater intimacy by now. Jesus knows these disciples and they have grown to know and to love him when we read these chapters it's lovely to see how jesus talks of his disciples he calls them my own my children my friends whenever i first began to grasp a little of this dynamic there was one notion here that really struck me jesus God among us calls his disciples friends. We'll see more of this as we look at these chapters together. But when I first came across that idea, it blew my mind. I wondered, was I just reading a dodgy translation? That word friend just leapt out at me. Could it be true that God calls those who follow Jesus friends? And if that's true, what does that mean for me as a follower of Jesus Christ to understand myself as a friend of God? I've been learning about that ever since, and we're going to get get a chance to consider that a little bit in these weeks ahead. One commentator picks up on that idea, and he sees it as the overarching theme for the whole of these five chapters. His title for his his book on on this particular part of John's gospel is simply Jesus and his friends. 
Jesus having dinner with his disciples. Jesus and his friends. I think that's, that's a wonderful idea for us to be uh, learning about and discovering in these weeks ahead. So far today we have looked at two of the three episodes recorded in this chapter. Jesus giving a new commandment at the end of the chapter. We looked at that this morning. And Jesus washing the disciples' feet at the start of the chapter. We've looked at that just now. I just briefly want to read the middle section with you and then comment briefly on it before we close. Let's read together John chapter 13, verses 18 to 30. Jesus predicts his betrayal. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture He who shares my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. And testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It's the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you're about to do, do quickly. Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought that Jesus was telling to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Most of us know this episode extremely well and I'm not going to look at it in any great detail. I do want to point out one significant feature of these verses before we close. In verse 19, Jesus said, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. You see, in the next 24 hours... Jesus will be betrayed. He'll be arrested. He'll face a number of unfair trials. He'll be nailed to a Roman cross. And he will die. None of that is a surprise to Jesus. He is able to tell his disciples about it before it happens. In fact, he makes a point of telling them, So that whenever these things do happen, 
they will know that he was in control and he foresaw every detail of his last hours. I don't know about you, friends, but sometimes, maybe during Holy Week or as we approach Easter, sometimes I get this this sense that the last days of Jesus were some terrible mistake. That in those last hours, the life of Jesus that had been so, so wonderful, somehow everything went horribly wrong at the end. If only Judas hadn't betrayed him. If only there'd been some justice in at least one of those courts where Jesus was tried. If only the Jerusalem crowd had chosen Jesus rather than Barabbas. If only Pilate had had a bit of backbone and stood up to the Jerusalem crowd. If only, if only, if only. Friends, time and again, God's word makes it clear that this was no terrible mistake. Jesus chose to go to Jerusalem knowing that he would die there. Jesus' very purpose for being born as a baby into this world was that he might be flogged, abused, ridiculed, and crucified. Jesus came into this world, you see, to save us from our sins. And this was always to be the way. Friends, I find that that humbling. More humbling to know that all of this was Jesus' intention than that it was some bad accident. More humbling to know that he approached Jerusalem, that he went there knowing he would die. Friends, Jesus died for you Because he chose to. Don't ever forget that. Jesus died for us. Because he loves us. I want to finish for this evening. We're going to spend the next Sunday evenings. In this most intimate of settings. The Gospels don't afford us a more intimate setting with Jesus. We're with his friends, gathered around a table for a meal on the night before he will die. Already we've been reminded a little of what this life of Jesus is all about. He calls us to serve one another, washing one another's feet. He calls us to love one another. A life of sacrificial love. Friends, it's my hope that as we gather together here Sunday by Sunday in these evenings, as we meet with the friends of Jesus, as we count ourselves among them, that we will learn much about what it means to follow Jesus Christ and to love him. Lord, I, friends, I hope that we will learn to identify ourselves and understand ourselves as friends of Jesus Christ. That's what he longs for each one of us. No longer that we would be his servants, but that we would become his friends.
Let us pray.